Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter number 2. Jonah chapter number 2. We're going to finish out chapter 2 this morning as we begin there in verse number 8 and we'll come down through verse number 10. Last week we looked at verse 1 down through verse 7 and saw the prayer of Jonah that is he's offering the belly of the fish but he recalls the prayer ushered in the sea was on the brink of death and uh, how God has rescued him here and now we're looking at the closing of that in verse 8 down through verse number 10 and the title of the message comes from the text itself and it is this, it is that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I think we'd all say amen to that one statement, wouldn't we? Let us read together. Jonah says in the midst or at the end of this prayer and actually this psalm, He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. You know, in our text, Jonah closes his prayer in this psalm with an emphatic statement. There's an exclamation point there. He says in verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. What does it mean that salvation belongs to the Lord? Well, when something belongs to someone, it means that they own it, that it is all theirs, right? One of our natural inclinations as human beings is to want total credit for things that we do or accomplish, isn't it? There were times as a teenager when I was probably tasked with mowing the yard or weed-eating a property and I took great ownership and pride in doing it all myself. I wanted to get to the end and say, look what I did, right? Sometimes someone would offer to help me, and though I was tired and it would benefit me, I would reject because I wanted it to be mine. (laughs) I wanted to look at it and say, you know what? This is mine. I did this. And that kind of has passed on to my kids, too. The other day, or two days ago, David, I I heard, I was in my office, and I heard um, stirring in the kitchen, and I knew Bethany wasn't up, and I go in there, and David is emptying the dishwasher, putting away dishes. And I said, what are you doing, son? Such a weird thing for a five-year-old to be doing. He said, I want to surprise mom and have all the dishes up uh, before she gets up. But he specifically noted this. I'm doing this without Jubilee's help. <laughs> it's all me. <laughs> it's all me. No, no credit to anybody else, but this is, this is all mine. And uh, even when it comes to the subject of salvation, you know that we, we like to, would like to have a little part that we claim is ours, wouldn't we? We can't help but want some credit, some measure of contribution. And I think it was fitting that we sung A Mighty Fortress Is Our God this Reformation month, the anniversary of the Reformation, written by Martin Luther, who nailed his 95 thesis to the church door in Germany, and, and uh, he began to a stir in that era of time. And really it was a stir that salvation does belong to the Lord. It's not doesn't belong to the church. It doesn't belong to us. It's not attained by works, but it is the Lord's work. And so that is what we see in our text and through the whole of Scripture. But did you know that the matter of salvation, there is no credit, no measure of contribution that we can claim. The Lord does not share the act of salvation with any other, and nor should He. To share even the smallest aspect of salvation with mankind would be to forfeit total and complete glory to God alone. To yield even 0.01% of salvation to us and Him do the 
12% would make salvation a failure. As anything touched by us is tainted with sin itself. This is the central truth we learn from the book of Jonah. The salvation belongs to the Lord. You see, from the beginning to the end, chapter 1 and chapter 4, the underlying reason for this book is because salvation belongs to the Lord. That is the reason we have the book of Jonah. It is seen in chapter 1, the sailors are saved by the Lord. It is seen in chapter 2, Jonah is delivered by the Lord. It is seen in chapter 3 as Nineveh is saved by the Lord. And even in chapter 4, God's questioning with Jonah, the subject is his mercy and salvation and to whom he wills to give that to. In the book as a whole, this message is seen as the sovereign God has commanded Jonah to go to Nineveh to bring salvation to them. And how greatly it is needed that many in today's age needs to understand this statement that Jonah proclaimed, that salvation belongs to the Lord. Notice with me what we learn from these short little verses here. Number one in our notes, and I know i got a lot of references for you there. I may not read all of them, but they're there for your benefit. But notice with me, number one this morning, I want to point out to you the vanity of man's attempts of salvation. The vanity of man's attempts of salvation. And here's two things that I can recognize in this passage and in Jonah as a whole, in which they are vain attempts at salvation, at deliverance. One is man's idolatry. His idolatry cannot save him. Man's idolatry cannot save him. Now, have you ever wondered why there are so many gods and religions in the world? There are thousands. In fact, I googled it. How many gods are professed to be in the world? There's literally thousands of different gods and sub-gods below this god. And it's a mess of what man has created, imagined in his mind regarding the idea of God. But you understand that there are, though there are thousands of gods out there that professed by man, only one of them can actually be true. Why is that? Because truth is absolute. Truth is unchanging. Truth cannot contradict. It is harmonious. It is unified. And therefore, every god, little g, and every religion cannot be true because they all contradict each other in one way or another. One lady coming through my register line at Kroger one day, she realized I was a Christian and she made clear to me that I just believe in the validity of all religions. That was her stance. That every religion has some merit. That every religion really has some way to God, some way to salvation. There are millions who believe just like her today. Millions in our own culture, in our own nation, who who believe that really it doesn't really matter which way you go, they're all going to lead to God eventually. How sorely mistaken and deceived they are. So why then are there so many gods and religions? Because mankind has invented and articulated gods based on his own fallen nature and understanding. Because there's no question that God's existence is real. It's real. Creation testifies to that fact and so does the conscience of men. I understand there's many who profess to be atheists. They don't believe in God at all. Well, I don't believe in atheists. Because Scripture plainly tells us that all of man knows there is a God. Those who claim atheism are simply in a deep denial of the reality that is true, even based on natural revelation. Paul said it this way, the Word of God. Let God be true and every man be a liar. But listen to Romans 1.20. 
Well, the invisible attributes, His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Paul says here that all of man is without excuse because creation testifies to a Creator. So the problem is, is that though man has natural revelation about God, what he needs is specific revelation of who this true God is. And specific revelation is that which you and I hold in our hands today. It is the Word of the living God, where God has expressly and detail in a detailed way revealed to us, this is who I am. This is what I have done. This is what I'm doing. Now, this is what we've seen throughout history. Various cultures and people all over the world, including in the book of Jonah. You say, well, how does this tie into Jonah? Right here in our text, look at verse 8. He makes a very important point for us. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols. Pause there for a moment. He's pointing out a particular kind of people who do a particular kind of thing in their life. Those who pay regard to vain idols. You see, there are many, millions upon millions in this present world who do this very thing. They pay regard to vain idols. What is meant by this description? The phrase, those who pay regard, referenced in the Hebrew lexicon, it refers, means to be a follower of, to be an adherent of. So they follow, they believe, they're, they're living after this particular idol. But notice what Jonah says about these people. They pay regard to vain idols. The word vain overall refers to something bad, evil, and worthless. Some translations render vain as worthless. Those who pay regard to worthless vanities or worthless idols. This is the description we're, we're seeing here. This is exactly what idols or false gods are. They are nothing more than empty, worthless, evil concepts that man has decided to conjure up, follow, and worship in his life. Where have we already seen false gods or idols in the book of Jonah? In the pagan sailors in chapter 1. There's a reason this is here, friends. Chapter 1 and verse 5, when the storm threatened the life of these sailors on board, we read, and each cried out to who? His God. They all had their own. (laughs) They all cried to their own God. There it is, plain as day. They were followers. They were men who paid regard to vain idols. And so Jonah was well aware of the many false gods of the pagans around him. He knew their true nature, and those, soon, those sailors soon learned. They soon learned the true nature of their gods compared to the God of Jonah. As we read in the Scriptures many times, Psalm 86 and verse 8, for example, the psalmist says, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord. There is none, nor are there any works like Yours. You see, the gods of the sailors could not deliver them. They could not save them from death. But the God of Jonah did save them from death because He's the one true God, the Creator of heaven and earth, the one who commands the raging sea and winds. You see, the sailors learned what so many in this world need to learn, and it is that there is only one true God, and He alone is salvation. All through the scriptures, this is repeated, the danger and even the stupidity 
of false idols in worship. Jeremiah 10, 7 through, uh, Jeremiah 10, 7 through 10, listen to this. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. Notice what he says. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But notice the contrast here in this next verse. But, but the Lord is what? The true God. He is the true God. He is the living God. Not a dead God, a living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earthquakes, nations cannot endure His indignation. There you find the reality, the contrast. That all the false idols and gods that man could make up, they are foolish. They are but the work of men's hands, and that there is only one true and living God. Men may not as much today make gods of stone or gods of wood, but bear this in mind that every form of false god is crafted in the imagination of man, crafted from his fallen nature. I think it was Calvin who rightly said that man's heart is an idol factory. It produces idols. That's what our nature is to do. We may not see it in little things created here and there, but you think of the gods that are promoted today. Allah, Buddha, Confucius, thousands of others. They are the craft of man's wicked heart. And listen, if you would, to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 20 through verse 22. Turn there with me. Look at this contrast again, similar to that of Jeremiah, but Isaiah 45. And listen to this. this is, if you read through Isaiah in chapter 40 and onward, I think there's a, almost like these gods are on trial. <laughs> He's putting them on trial, but listen to what he says here. Isaiah 45, verse 20 through 22. He says, Assemble yourselves and come and draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. There is no way around this. The one true God shows that all other gods are unable to save because they are not God of any kind. And it doesn't matter, friend. It doesn't matter how convinced or how faithful a person is to a false god. It doesn't change the fact that it's not real that it's not the true God they are following after. Because if their God is not the one true God, the Lord of the Scriptures, they have paid regard to vain idols. So why does Jonah speak this truth in this prayer and in this psalm? It kind of seems a little random, doesn't it? Well, not only does it have reference to sailors, I think. He, 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 he witnessed that. 
But you understand that when it comes to Israel, even in Jonah's day and time, they were absolutely steeped in idolatry. Guess who's going to read the book of Jonah? Israel. That was one of the downward patterns of them. Samuel warned them early on of this, saying in 1 Samuel 12, 21, And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver. They are empty. But yet what we look at in the culture and in their history, they repeatedly went off into idolatry. God says to them through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2, 5, He says, Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? In other words, he's saying to them, why in the world would you leave me to go after that which is not going to profit or save you? God plainly shows that he will not give glory to such things. But not only do we see man's idolatry cannot save him, I want you to note that man's ability cannot save him either. Man's ability of himself. And really, understand this, that this is yet another form of idolatry. But it is a so much more subtle form of idolatry. It's not so much that someone looks to some other god than the true god, but that someone looks to themselves as the means of gaining salvation under the umbrella of the true god. See, one may be under the umbrella of the true god, the god of the Bible, while all the while trusting in themselves. For salvation, trusting in that which is religious that they do or have done. It may seem that this person is on the right track. They attend church, they sing hymns, they listen to preaching, they give toward the offering. Maybe they've been baptized, maybe they've partaken of the Lord's Supper. Doing all of these religious acts, thinking in some way they contribute to their salvation, trusting in those things as their salvation. In their heart, they have never been born again, having been saved by faith alone through grace alone. See, what is wrong with this picture? It is an idolatry of self. It is a trusting in me and what I can do and what I have done religiously. What does God say of such things? Jeremiah 17, 5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. You understand to trust in yourself or to trust in any other other than the God of heaven is to have a vain trust. It is to have a misplaced trust to think somehow that we can gain heaven of something we can do is to fool ourselves. George Whitfield, the great preacher of many years ago, he said, what to get to heaven on your own strength while you might as well try to climb to the moon on a rope of sand. It's an impossible, ridiculous concept. So what do we learn from each of the experiences in the book of Jonah? It is that there was nothing that could be done by any person to save themselves. Look at the sailors for a moment. What could they do? All of their physical energy, exertion, and the sea and the ship, all of their intellectual ideas, let's throw the cargo overboard, let's do this, let's do that. Everything of their own effort failed and fell flat on its face could not save them. They could not save themselves. Guess what? God had to rescue them or they perished. Look at Jonah. 
plunging into the deep to his death, could do nothing in his power to rescue himself. He could not swim to the surface. He could not make it to land. He could not keep himself. He couldn't grow gills and start breathing underwater. He could do nothing. God had to rescue Jonah or he's perishing. And you understand that there is a spiritual application of this. Though their salvation in these texts are physical in nature, the spiritual truth is woven throughout all of the Bible. Because all of mankind, understand, is spiritually dead in their sin. Following after their own wicked desires and devices and the worldly allurements. Mankind is enslaved to their sinfulness. They follow Satan as their guide even without realizing it. They are running in one direction, full head of steam, towards the wrath of the Almighty, which they are worthy of. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, listen to the description of mankind outside of Christ. Paul says to them, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You read this description, friend. How could we ever think that with such a depraved sinful nature and course in this world that we could contribute anything to ourselves being saved? In fact, in that particular state, we don't want anything to do with being Paul later says in that same chapter, as he asserts of their salvation, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is what? Not your doing. That's so important. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. What does this show us? That salvation, even to the very point of our faith, in itself is the gift of God. So many don't see that. There's really only one way in which you're connected or you contribute to your salvation, and it's the fact that you're the sinner that needs to be saved. Jonathan Edwards rightly said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. I need to be saved because of my sin. That's my part. Guess what? I'm saved because God did His part. You see, Scripture, which is God's revelation of truth to us, unmistakably asserts that man can do nothing regarding his salvation. Yet it is, prominent, it is a prominent deception today in many Christian circles that man does part of it. It's broadly assumed that some we help God finish out what He started. I don't want... A God who has to have me help him finish what he started. Do you? Oh, how we need to see that salvation belongs to the Lord. The sailors could not save themselves. Jonah could not save himself. We could not save ourselves. God must do the saving. Which brings us to number two, the necessity. We see the vanity of man's attempts at salvation, but we see the necessity of God working salvation. And here's why. Notice with me, firstly, that God alone is the person of salvation. 
He alone is the person of salvation. Now here's where we see the connection back in our text in verse 8. Jonah says, those who pay regard to vain idols. We've looked at what those kind of people are and what they do. What is the result of their giving regard to vain idols? They forsake their hope of steadfast love. They forsake their hope of steadfast love. But what is this steadfast love he speaks of? It is the mercy and grace of the Lord. This word for steadfast love is is typically used of God's covenant love towards His people. And so what Jonah is saying is, is to go after any idol, any God, or any religious dependence on ourselves other than the one true Lord is to shun He who is salvation. It is to shun and depart from and run away from Him who is grace to us. Him who is mercy to us. Because He alone is salvation. God describes this with His own people again in Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13. Listen to these verses. Let the Word of God speak. Don't take my word for it. Let Him speak. He says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see what he's saying there? God is saying, I am the fountain of living water for them. They decided they're going to forsake the fountain of living water and create their own cisterns that don't hold any water. It is ultimate self-destruction. To turn from the one true God who is salvation. Jonah is essentially saying in his prayer, no idol, no golden calf, no religious duty, nor any other thing could have rescued my life from the deep. It is only the Lord God who could and did do that. He teaches us, John Randall Easter says here, he teaches us that men who turn aside from the one true God rob themselves of their own chief good. Today, friend, if if you're, you're running from God, you're going to your own destruction. It's a bad step, that direction. Don't follow it. Turn back to the living God. See, here is the fundamental truth of the whole picture here. It is that there's one true God and that this one God alone saves His people by His steadfast love. In the scope of salvation, it is God alone to whom all belongs from beginning to ending. And I've pointed out a few very brief sub-points here. One is that God alone planned salvation. Salvation wouldn't even exist if God didn't ordain it to be. If you look and see kind of a snapshot of it all in Romans chapter 8, 29 and 30. Because understand this, that saving sinners was not an afterthought to God after He created everything. God didn't see man's sin and be like, oh no, what do we do now? We better come up with a plan. No, friend, He planned it from the very beginning, even before creation. Romans 8 and verse 29 through 30, look at this. What often many call the golden chain, and certainly it is. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, 
in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You know what you see in these two short little verses? You see a snapshot of eternity past to eternity future and all in between of what God has done. All of it. The big picture is right here, friend. Notice the sequence that God first predestined whom He would save, and then He calls by His gospel whom He would save. Then He justifies those whom He is saving, and then He glorifies them ultimately in the end. That is the end we look forward to, isn't it? You say, but when did this plan of redemption and when did this predestination take place? Before the world began. Ephesians 1, 45. Paul writes concerning God's plan of redemption, even as He chose us in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. This is the glorious doctrine of election that we see in the Scriptures. But not only did God plan our salvation, God also provided salvation in Christ. You see, Paul writes of the glorious provision of God, saying in Romans 5, 8 through 9, but God shows His love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been, now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. That's the middle point. That's the, that's the crux of all history. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because there on the cross is the chief display of God's steadfast love. That Jonah says, those who go other ways, they forsake that. They forsake this steadfast love. God alone also perfects salvation, bringing it to its final conclusion in the end. And this is what we... (laughs) This is what we saw at the end of the golden chain of salvation called glorification. 1 John 3, 1, listen to this. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be what? Like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. You understand, Scripture teaches us that there's a glorious day in which Jesus returns. This old mortal, fleshly, corrupt body is going to be gone forever, never to rise again. But guess what? We're going to have a new glorified body. We will be like Him and dwell with Him and behold Christ face to face. You understand that that is the end to which we look forward to. That is the end of our salvation, entering the eternal state with Christ to live in that fellowship forever. To be like unto Jesus at the end will be glory unfathomable and God's promise of glorification will finally be fulfilled. You understand, it is as good and set in stone as if it's happened today. Christian, behold these passages and what Jonah professes, that salvation belongs to the Lord from beginning to end. God planned to save Jonah that day. He provided salvation for Jonah that day. By the means of that great fish, God perfected salvation for Jonah that day physically by taking him all the way to the land. And all of this flowed from the steadfast love of God towards Jonah. You see, there is no steadfast love, no grace, no mercy outside of the one true God who is salvation. Which leads me to the second aspect 
Letter B, you'll notice that God alone is to be praised for salvation. And that is exactly what we see Jonah doing in our text, is not? Verse 9, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You understand that this has been a theme from verse 2 all the way to verse 9 that Jonah is ushering forth thankfulness and praise to his Lord, the one true God, even from the midst of a smelly, claustrophobic fish belly. Jonah is praising and thanking God. Why would he do that? Well, we brought out last week that Jonah understands that this fish is the means of God to rescue him from certain death and burial in the sea. He recognized God's saving work on his behalf, and thus he calls on the Lord out of the depths he called. And with this heart of thankfulness, notice that Jonah has a specific response to the Lord. Jonah commits to offer sacrifice with the voice of thanksgiving. Jonah looks forward to getting out of that belly and sacrificing to the Lord. I think we'd all be looking forward to that, don't you think? He looks forward to getting out of the fish and worshiping the Lord properly, giving Him a sacrificial offering as He demands under the Old Testament. But notice also we read that He is committed to pay or fulfill what He has vowed to the Lord. This is His response to the Lord and His salvation. Now, we're not told exactly what this vow is, but it seems to me that Jonah has vowed, okay, Lord, I'm going to do what you've said. I'll go to Nineveh. Because that's what happens next in his life. Now, this may lead us to think, did Jonah have a change of heart toward God's will to show mercy to Nineveh? Well, not exactly. Not exactly. You say, why not? Well, wait till you get to chapter 4 and you'll see why. Jonah has a change of heart in his rebellion, but not necessarily in God's will to save the Ninevites. There's a distinction there. But one thing I think is clear that Jonah understands here is that he can't alter who God's going to work on. He can't alter who God chooses to show mercy to. He says salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to Jonah. It's not for Jonah to decide Nineveh's unworthy, so they're not getting this. Doesn't belong to him. Belongs to the sovereign God. Because salvation belongs to him. As Paul rightly quotes what God said to Moses in Romans 9 15, where he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on those whom I will have compassion. God can and will save whomever he desires because he is the sovereign over all things. And I think Jonah, throughout this whole experience, comes to realize, you know what, I can't thwart what God's going to do. Charles Spurgeon rightly comments here, he says, suffering is the college of orthodoxy. Many a Jonah who now reject the doctrines of the grace of God only needs to be put into the whale's belly and he will cry out with the most sound, free grace man, salvation is by the Lord. Because here's the reality, Christian. God could have left Nineveh in their sin to perish, but He doesn't. 
God could have done the same for Jonah in the sea. He could have righteously and lovingly let Jonah drown, die, be buried there, and never looked back. But he did not. You see, God would have been perfectly pure and holy and righteous and just and loving and merciful and gracious and compassionate if he just let Jonah die, if he just let Nineveh perish in their sins. God had no obligation to save Jonah, but he did anyway. And Christian, we have to take this to our own heart because God had no obligation to save any of us, but by his grace he did anyway. We deserve to be left in our sins, to perish. But by His grace and His steadfast love, He has done it anyway. Salvation belongs to the Lord our God. And therefore, praise belongs to the Lord our God alone. He alone is worthy of this praise. Which leads us to number three, and I just want to tie in the picture of salvation here for us all. We see the glory of Christ in completing the salvation of His people, or securing the salvation of His people. We see the glory of Christ, because Christ alone has secured the salvation of His people. That's what He has done. And this is where we have to see really the big picture of Jonah. What is truly the central picture of the book of Jonah? Where does Jonah's experience lead us to? It leads us straight to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. We've already considered that in some depth in, in, our last, in a couple messages ago where we read uh, chapter 1 and verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What's the New Testament connection there? It's that just as Jonah was swallowed up by the great fish, Jesus was going to be swallowed up by a great enemy known as death. Death. You see, Christ would die and would remain dead for three days and three nights. But it is not merely that Christ would die, that is the gospel. It is that His death is more significant than creation itself. It is that His death accomplishes something, fulfills something. His death secures the redemption and salvation of His people. Because Christ with His blood on the cross paid for the sins of His people on that cross, bearing the wrath of God that they should be the ones bearing. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You see, there on the cross, the most glorious transaction takes place. And Christ summarizes it in His final words before He gives up His last breath and leaves His body behind. He says, it is finished. What does that mean? means that all that was required to atone and satisfy the wrath of God on behalf of sinners, all the prophecies that lead up to the one and perfect Savior, all of it has come to completion in Christ on the cross. 
This, friend, is why salvation rests in God alone and none of it rests in you. No matter how good you think you are or how good you could be, it is an impossibility for you to atone for your own sins. And that's a common idea in today, isn't it? Well, I need to make up for this that I did, or I need to atone some way for this bad I did. Friend, there's no such thing as atoning for yourself. You need someone to atone for you. And that only person who's done it is Christ. A sinless Savior had to do that, and that's what he does with his blood. Charles Spurgeon rightly said, morality may keep you out of jail, but it takes the blood of Jesus to keep you out of hell. A lot of so-called good people keep themselves out of jail, but you understand, before God, none are good. None are righteous. They need the atonement of Christ. You see, if it were at all possible for you to be saved, in and of yourself, there would have been no reason, no need at all for God the Son to enter into humanity, live a perfect sinless life, and die in such a gruesome way. Bearing the wrath of God, if it was, up to, if it was within your capability, all was for nothing. But we know that it's beyond our capability. The plan from the beginning was for Jesus, God's eternal Son, to step into history for humanity to purchase sinners unto himself. The Bible tells us of his atonement in Hebrews 9.12. The Hebrew author says of Christ, He entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Thus doing what for us, church? Securing an eternal redemption. Not a temporal one, but an eternal one. By his own blood that he shed. So Christian or sinner today, think of this. Do you need salvation? Is it salvation that you need today? Here's what you must do. Look to Christ alone. Believe on Christ alone. He alone is salvation. Do you question salvation today? The answer is the same. Look to Christ alone. See Him there. His blood for sinners. John Owen comments here rightly. and says, let faith look on Christ in the gospel as He is. Set forth dying and crucified for us. Look on Him under the weight of our sins. Praying, bleeding, dying. Bring Him in that condition into thy heart by faith. Apply His blood so shed, so shed to thy corruptions. Do this daily. We daily need a good dose of the gospel of Jesus. But that is not where the gospel stops. Let me point out this last and final point here. Not only do we see that Christ alone has secured the salvation of His people, but you understand that Christ alone is the sign of salvation to all people. He's the sign. You see, the full picture of the sign of Jonah fulfilled in Christ culminates in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Had Jesus merely died, had He merely died and failed to overcome the great enemy that is death, there would be no salvation. He could not have secured that which needed to be paid. But thus we read what happens with Jonah. Verse 10, The Lord spoke to the fish and committed Jonah 
out or vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. God again in his sovereignty speaks to the fish, the fish obeyed. Now we can only imagine for a moment how disgusting this event must have been for Jonah. Imagine Jonah feeling the motion inside the fish's belly, hearing the gurgling sound that we love to hear when our children are sick, right? Grab the bucket, grab the bowl, whatever, it's coming. Imagine Jonah inside the fish's belly being thrust up through its mouth with all those internal liquids that come up when an animal vomits. I'm painting you a really good picture before we go eat lunch. Okay? I just want to... Mattered, did it, to Jonah? Didn't matter how disgusting this was for Jonah. What mattered is that Jonah's rescue is complete. He is on dry land again. He's brought all the way from death at the bottom to life above. Imagine how relieved he must have been to be vomited out on dry land and to feel dry land, to see all around him dry land. And know that God had delivered him from a death he actually deserved to die. This deliverance was all God's. But I want to point this out to you, Christian, that more important than Jonah exiting the whale's belly, Jesus exiting the tomb on the third day. And that is the sign. The sign of salvation. Again, I'll reference this, just for reference sake. Matthew 12, 40, Jesus said to that generation that wanted a sign, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What is it that sparked such a drastic and powerful change and transformation in the era of the early church? Why do we see thousands upon thousands of people coming to Christ, believing on Christ, being faithful to Christ, despite even persecution? The answer is found in this one, that Christ is risen from the dead. See, when Christ died, they were all distraught, not fully understanding why He died, didn't know what was going on. But on the third day, Christ defeated death itself. Having seen with their own eyes the risen Lord, they could do nothing but go to the grave for that very message. Because Jesus, even if the grave takes them, Jesus has already conquered the grave. Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, preached in Acts 2, 23 and 24, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of law, Raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You understand that this same crowd that demanded a sign Peter is preaching to, many of them, religious Jews, there in Jerusalem for Pentecost, the sign is being declared to them, and the power and evidence in the Holy Spirit is being declared to them Christ is. Risen. He's not dead. He's risen. 
today and through all of church history until the very end of history, the resurrection of Christ is the sign and seal, the absolute confirmation beyond all doubt that Jesus Christ in Him alone, He is Lord, Savior, and King. And that is the message we preach to all the world, all the nations. Repent and believe the gospel because Christ is Lord. He's not a dead Lord. He's a living Lord. And there is salvation in no one else but Him. Do you see this morning the connection between Jonah and Jesus and the bigger picture of redemption? You understand that salvation belongs to the Lord from all of this text and all of the others. Today... I don't know your heart, but I can only tell you this. Do not look to any other than Jesus Christ alone. He is salvation, and salvation belongs to Him. Repent of your sins, believe on Christ, and He will save those who are believers in Him. Let us stand to our feet as we close the song. Father, we bow before you this morning and thank you, Father, for this text of Scripture, so much truth that can be gleaned from it as the thread and theme of salvation is woven from beginning to end of your word. Redemptive history belongs to you, Lord. It is your plan. It has been provided by you. You're the one who completes it. May all of us recognize today that salvation belongs to you. May we praise you, may we rejoice in you, and may we declare the glorious message of the gospel of Christ to the world around us. We pray it in Jesus' name.